incredible commitment, and we perhaps wonder why miracles happen there. Eh? So, um, yeah, incredible stuff. It could lead, it should lead to um, about 26 sports evangelism teams happening that serve churches in communities that will then multiply in following um, months and years that um, should lead to thousands hearing about Jesus and hopefully many responding. Praise God. Amen. Isn't that great? Fantastic. Okay, are you ready to engage into tonight? I'm going to go fast and I'm going to see if I can keep you awake. I just so appreciate you coming out tonight on a Monday night and we had a busy weekend and then you go straight back to work and here you are, you lovely people, ready to hear the word of the Lord and just get further instructed on this whole subject of leadership. Hands up if you were there on Sunday. You're there on Sunday? Okay, lots of you. Okay, let's give you a little test, okay? Now, first of all, we looked at this fact that leadership is influence, and all of us in varying degrees are leaders because we are all influencing something. We're all influencing somebody. And the text that we used was in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, which says, we are new creations. The old is gone and the new has come, and all of this is from God, who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Remember that? God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And Paul says, you are therefore Christ's ambassadors. And I just want to say this. I think in Christendom, we have made a mistake somewhere along the line by separating the spiritual from the secular. And so we celebrate the one that goes to Bible school and the one that goes to university. Oh, that's okay, but that's secular. But the one that goes to Bible school, oh, wow, he, he's going into the ministry. And I think that train of thought has messed us up. It's gone so deep, that understanding, it's, it's like a, a false paradigm. And I believe we're in an hour where God wants to smash that and bring the truth is that we are all Christ ambassadors Yes, we've all been given the ministry of reconciliation, and we are all in full-time ministry. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're in full-time ministry. You know, this is a paradigm shift, but I believe when we go to university, when we have an understanding of the kingdom of God, we're going there to get trained so that we can influence so we can lead into all different areas of life. It could be in business, it could be in the arts, it could be in education. Wherever God has, whatever God has put in your hand, whatever tool to use it, that you use it for his glory. But when we don't, when we don't have that understanding and we separate the two, the secular from the spiritual, then what happens is amazing gifted people come to the church and they check their brain at the door when they come in because we're just to sit here and we just we don't really have anything to give because this is the spiritual world and I'm in the secular world it's an absolute load of rubbish the church is the ecclesia it's the called out ones We've been called out. When we, cut, we don't go to church on a Sunday. We are the church. We're just gathering. It's the assembly of the righteous. And it's amazing what happens when we get together. Even tonight, we got to worship God. It was wonderful. It's wonderful, isn't it? When you've just been working all day, and you're like, man, I get to go with my brothers and sisters and worship. 
But I think we're going to start seeing more and more in the body of Christ that, that we see the fullness of gifts functioning in the church, outside of the church, in every sphere of life. We're going to see ambassadors. We're going to see people with, going with the ministry of reconciliation, and we're going to see people influencing the world. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like yeast. You know, a teaspoon, if you've ever made any bread, you have a teaspoon of yeast, and then you have this big lump of dough. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like yeast that works into the dough. But so often we get scared of the dough. Oh, I don't want the dough to affect me. I don't want the dough to affect my children. But perhaps if we taught the power of the yeast that is in the teaspoon and how powerful that is. See, yeast is actually alive. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like yeast. It's amazing this illustration is so simple. You could use it on every nation on the planet because everybody eats bread. But yeast is alive and it works on contact. So we can't say, well, we're a society over here that doesn't want to be affected by the dough. No! Then we don't understand the kingdom. The kingdom is powerful and it works on contact. Amen? Okay, so it's all about influence. Leadership is influence. Influence, influence. And we are all influencing somebody somewhere. And that's why this whole subject of leadership, I don't want you to think when we're talking about leadership, we're talking about an elite few that are very spiritual that the rest of us can't possibly understand because they're so close to God. Okay? Is that, is that a good start? Okay, so here's a little test. On Sunday, we used, that we, it was called the Ten Commandments of Leadership, and it spelt leadership, just to be different. And so the acronym is, starts with the letter L, and L was for? Love. Thou shall L, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And E was for? And setting an example. Good, good, good students. Setting an example. Leaders are an example. Paul says to Timothy, a young man, he says, set, a, set an example to the believers. Timothy was a young man. But set an example to the believers. In how? In your life, in your love, in your speech, and in your purity. Set an example. The word set there means to take a stand against the opposition. See, if we understand that we live in a world that is opposing, the spirit of the age is opposing the kingdom of light. So Paul is saying, Timothy, set a standard, set an example, set yourself up against the opposition. And let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Be a good influencer. Be a good leader. Okay? So the first commandment is to love the Lord your God. The second is to set an example. And A is for accountability. Each one of us must know what we're accountable for and who we are accountable to. We're going to look at that more as we go along. But accountability, you know, reaction to an error leads you into another error. And I think there's certain words that, like accountability, that we just by nature don't really like. <laughs> oh, I don't want to be accountable to anybody. I want to do things my way. So 
because of an abuse of authority or abuse of accountability, we react to the error and the pendulum swings and it leads into another error. And the other, the error, other error is, I can do whatever I want. You're not the boss over me. But accountability is so important. We are going to have to give an account, each one of us. But accountability protects leaders. And in this series, we're going to see that time and time again. Okay, D. Decisions. Make good decisions. Make good decisions. Make good decisions. E is for? Encourage. Thou shall encourage, learn to encourage thyself. It's so important that we know how to encourage ourselves. We looked at 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6, where it was David at Ziklag and his own men were about to kill him. And it says, David wept till there's no strength left in him. And then he shazacked, he hazacked himself. He conquered himself. He encouraged himself. But, you know, I haven't got time to dig into this. But if you can actually imagine David's turmoil. That his own friends, Fred and Bob and Joey, the ones that he discipled, the ones he'd he'd helped come and and trained them in the cave of Adullam, train them up to be the mighty men. He knows them. And they're like, hey, Dave, dude, I'm sorry, man, but you have messed up. Everybody, you've lost our wives. We've lost our our wives and our kids because of you. And you're going to have to die, man. That's a bad day. But it says he fell on the ground and he wept. But a leader must, must, thou shall encourage thyself in the Lord. Shazak yourself. And sometimes there's no one else around you that can do it. I think I brought this out on Sunday, but there's times that God will close, close the ears and close the eyes of the people closest to us to cause us to go to the only one that can help us, and that is Jesus. And there's a mark of a leader. I know how to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm not going to just feel sorry for myself. There's a time for that. There's a natural response, okay? I'm not talking about mind over matter. No, no, you see, didn't. no. Job, at this, he fell on the ground. He tore his clothes. He shaved his head. And then he worshipped God. There's a natural response. Here I'm saying, David wept till there's no strength left in him. So thou shall learn to encourage thyself in the Lord. What's the next one? Responsible. Respon- thou shall know what you're responsible for. Or something like that. But responsibility is the ability to respond. And we looked at Matthew 25 and the story of it was about a man going on a journey and he, took, he called his servants together and he entrusted talents to each one of them. And to, the first one doubled it, the second one doubled it, and the third one hid, watch this, he hid his talent because he was afraid. So he hid his talent. He buried his talent and he exposed his fear. What he should have done is buried his fear and exposed his talent. And God did not take kindly in this story, Jesus tells this story, of the one that did not, was not faithful, was not responsible for what he had been given. I think about this out study of that this week. It baffled me that nowhere in the story did the master, Jesus in this situation, actually tell them, give them clear instructions as to what to do. Have you ever noticed that? 
He never actually said, hey, I want you to do this, I want you to do that, I want you to do that. And when I come back at this time, I expect this. He just said he gave them some talents, then went on a journey. But he gave them each according to their ability. Okay? So, interesting. We'll, go, we'll look more into that. But leadership is about responsibility. If we don't have the ability to respond, then we shouldn't be given the responsibility. All right, what's the next one? Stand. We must be able to stand. Stand. In Ephesians chapter 6, about the armor of God, Paul says, and when you've done everything, take your stand against the enemy. Stand strong then. He says it several times. Stand in Galatians. Stand, stand, stand. But a man without conviction is at the mercy of circumstance. And if circumstance causes us to change our conviction, then they were never convictions in the first place. But a leader, thou shall stand. Thou shall stand, thou shall stand. A good leader will stand against the enemy and know, what to, and know when to stand for truth, to stand for what is right. And whether they're, whether they're your friend or they're not, I'm going to stand and I'm going to speak the truth because it's right, that's why. Amen? Okay, S, next one is humility. Humility, okay, I, I knew that. So humility... Thou shall walk in humility. Micah 6.8 says this. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And we looked at this on Sunday, but humility is having an accurate assessment of who God says that we are. An accurate assessment. Pride is having an inaccurate assessment of who we think we are. But humility is having an accurate assessment. If, you, when you, if you're truly walking with the Lord and you know who you are, you know what God's called you to do, then you, when you speak, you can speak with confidence. And it is not pride. It's actually humility because you are clear in your identity. That's why of Moses it says that Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. And if you know who wrote that, it was Moses. <laughs> he wrote of himself that he was the most humble man that ever lived. Humility. Everyone say humility. Okay, what's next? Impossible. This one's huge. It's huge. And I didn't really unpack this, and I don't have time to do it tonight, so we can get through this next stage. But um, the impossible. A, a, tr a believer, sorry, a, a leader must believe in the impossible. Without faith, I believe is the scripture we looked at. It's impossible to please God. We must believe in the impossible. And it's when we get to the realm of the, the line, if you like, the threshold of the natural, it's when we step over, we step over into the realm of the supernatural. And that takes faith. Have you ever been in a room? It's, it's, I call them life givers and life sappers. But you're just like, hey, we've got this great idea. God's spoken. Amazing things have happened. They're like, yeah, that will never work. You're like, what? No, no, no. This is great. This is, yeah, I, we tried that. It didn't work. And whatever you do, they're just sucking the life out of the room. They suck the faith out of the room. That's not a, a hallmark of a good leader. I'm not talking about being wise. I'm just talking about creating an atmosphere of faith. And I've seen it, and I'm sure you have too, time and time again, where leadership is influence, you can change and influence the room, you can influence a person by your faith. The influence of the room can go up in faith or it can go down in faith. I remember being in a meeting many years ago and somebody had got healed of cancer. And they went to the doctor and there was no cancer. The place just erupted. The faith in the room, the excitement, because of this 
the, the cancer is gone. I mean, it's medical, medical fact. The doctor says, we can't find it. Then somebody else stood, stands up and said, yeah, can I just say, sometimes cancer goes into remission and you just can't find it. So I just want to say, you know, maybe that's why. <laughs> what? And it just sucked the life out of the room. It sucked the faith out of the room. Everyone's like, who does that? What? But it, I'm not just talking about energy, and, but it's faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. A leader must believe in the impossible. He must be predisposed to believe. I don't know, but God. I've gone, it's beyond me, but God. I just believe. I'm, we're going to believe. We're going to step out in faith. We've got to believe. Amen. Oh, so what was the next one? What is it? Oh, progress. <laughs> progress. I know. Progress. Everyone say progress. Paul is saying to Timothy here, he says, watch your life and doctrine carefully. Let everybody see your progress. It's so important that we continue to go from faith to faith and glory to glory, that we continue to progress. Progress. A leader, a person of influence, must never stop learning, must never stop growing. Hands up if you have an iPhone here. I just recently, just this week, it says it's time for an update. Upgrade. Update, update, upgrade. And so in the end, and then it said you, have to, you don't have enough battery power, you have to be over 70% or something, and you have to have good Wi-Fi and this, that, and the other. So eventually, I had all those things in place, and I hit update. And it turned my phone off. And when it came back, everything was different. There was different colors. It worked faster. But you know, God is like that. In Isaiah, it says, I think it's 43, it says, Behold, I'm doing a new thing, though it springs up. Do not perceive it. You know, God is always doing something new. There's always more for us. There's always new wine. There's always more revelation. Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, I pray, The eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know him better. That means that we can know him better. And the more we know him, the more we become like him. There's more church. But I believe sometimes there's a little blip on our screens. says, hey, it's time for an upgrade. It's time for an update. If we don't, we'll get stuck in religiosity. God, you know, God is not scared of the 21st century. <laughs> he really isn't. And the message doesn't change, but the method does. That's why we need to be flexible. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be snapped. We need to realize that God is doing something new and embrace what he's doing. I'm not talking about foundational truths. I'm talking about the way we communicate with a world which is rapidly changing. Sometimes we need to have a time for an update. Amen? So there it is. Um, leadership. These are, I can just say, on Sunday, somebody said to me, what I love about this, Dan, is I work in the secular world, and all of these apply to me in my workplace. And I'm going to use some of these with my staff, and I'm going to use these with my colleagues. The only one that's different is to love thy God, but he said, I'm going to change it to love what you do. These are translatable principles. Next Sunday, I'm going to do Ten Commandments, and they all are, thou shall not. <laughs> so no one will be there on Sunday. Okay. Are you ready to change gear? You know, um, 
And, you know, you can look up these scriptures. I know sometimes people say, you read the scriptures so fast, and, but you can go back and listen to them. Um, but in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, it says this. In light of all this, and he's talking about when Jesus comes back, he says, in light of all this, what kind of people ought we to be? That's a great question, isn't it? What kind of people ought we to be? And I want you to ask you, you, you to ask yourself this question tonight. What kind of leader ought I to be? What kind of influencer ought I to be? What kind of people, Paul says, Peter says, ought we to be? And I just want to tonight, and we'll see how far we go, but I want to hallmark five different types of of leader. But I want to say this to you before we start, because some of these can seem a little negative, like, ah, I know a leader like that. Please don't do that. Don't look at your husband or your wife and nudge them. That's you, that is. <laughs> but take a little journey inside of yourself, because some of these things, are these idiosyncrasies, these characters, these we find in ourselves, and as I was studying this, oh, I'd cringe, I'm like, I can't even write this. And I'd look up a definition, and I'd Google it, and I'd study a subject like, oh, I see myself there so much. I hate it. I don't want to be like that. But that's the beginning of change, of recognition to be able to self-assess, where am I? Do you remember the GPS, a GPS finds you wherever you're at? I think I've talked about this before, there's seven things about a GPS instead of a global positioning system. It's a God positioning system. But a GPS, God's positioning system, number one, will find you wherever you're at. Remember that? Number two, it will never ask you where you've been. Number three, it will find you a route. Number four, it will only speak when it's time to turn. Number five, it will stay quiet. Sorry, it will, number four, it will only speak when you move. Number five, it will stay quiet until it's time to turn again. And number six, if you go the off track, it will, re, it will find you, reroute you and find you another course. And number seven, it will always get you to your destination, hopefully. It will get you to your destination. And the reason I'm just recapping over that tonight is my prayer tonight is that we would find ourselves somewhere in these characteristics of leaders. The title is, What Kind of People Ought We to Be? It's a good question. What kind of people, as a church, what kind of people ought we to be? What kind of leader ought you to be? So here's the first one. Ready? The first one, there's five. The first one is the compulsive leader. The compulsive leader. The compulsive leader. A compulsive leader is obsessed with the need to conform. The characteristics of a compulsive leader are they pursue perfection. They are often highly rigid and performance-driven. They're orderly and systematic. And they often find it hard to endure mistakes, even their own. A compulsive leader can be very explosive. 
<laughs> so the room's gone really quiet. So you've got to remember, you can't go, oh, yes, I know who he's talking about. I'm not. <laughs> but it could be you, it could be me, and there could be traits of this, and I believe they are at some point in, in each one of us. A Bible illustration in part, okay, Please don't come and say, well, well, he was a good man. I know that. But there were things in Moses, everyone say Moses, that made him a very compulsive leader. Now, often a strength can be a double weakness. And the very thing that our very character and our strength that God uses actually can be our weakness that actually causes us to fall. That compulsion, that explosion in Moses caused him, because of a sense of justice, to go and kill an Egyptian. And in anger, he murdered him, and then he buried him in the ground. And the very next day, someone who didn't know was watching said, I know what you did. And then he said to him, who made you prince over us? Sometimes the enemy will prophesy over our future because the truth is God did but here you see this character flaw if you like something that needs to be worked on something that in his character made him who he was and made him such a great leader made him such a powerful leader an assertive leader but this compulsive style of leadership that was not harnessed with good character caused him a trait that eventually cost him going into the promised land, and it was anger. He was angry with the Egyptian, first-degree murder. Then God sends him up the mountain to come down with the tablets, and when he comes down, Aaron, his mate, who should have known better, had allowed Israel to make a golden calf to make an idol to God. And in his anger, he throws down the tablets and they break. Can you see this compulsive behavior, this compulsive leader, as strong as he is and as powerful as he was, had a trait in him that was unharnessed, kept coming up, kept coming up, kept coming up. And then God told him to speak to the rock. But instead of speaking to the rock, he beat the rock. He struck it in anger. And God said, Moses, they're going to go in, but you're not. You'll only see it from a distance. Is there something in your character? Is there something in you that is not yet harnessed by the Holy Spirit? And you think, well, it's who I am. That's why it makes me who I am. I'm, I'm very just strong. I'm very, very clear. That's wonderful. But is it really that you have to be in control? Is it really something inside of you that I have to be in control and, I, and I, I feel unsafe when I'm not? And that's where this anger comes from, this outburst. A man named Charles Simpson once said to me in a restaurant, I just started pastoring a church and I said, Charles, if you could say anything to me, what would you say? And the first thing he said was this. He said, son, unexploded dynamite is more powerful than exploded dynamite. And I looked at him and I said, what, what do you mean? What do you say? He said, if you just blow up all the time, 
after a while, it's like, that's just damn. But if people know that you could, but you don't, that's more powerful. Good, huh? The compulsive leader, the compulsive leader. And in church life, we've often seen it, in, or, in, or even in your workplace, or in, as a father, or as a mother. We say, I'm, I need to micromanage everything. I have to be in control. I have to know what's going on, because I've, got to, I've just got to know what's going on. I've got to know. I struggle with fits of rage. You know, 2.5 to 3 million people had to line up every day, standing up to go and listen to Moses' counsel. To resolve issues, to, to talk about stuff. Why? Because Moses was the man. You have to come to me. Everybody has to come to me because I'm the man. But can you see? It was that took, actually took his, his father-in-law, Jethro, to say, Moses, come here. Listen to me. Listen to me. He said, why don't you break these people up into, into groups and actually set leaders so that you don't burn yourself out? Delegation is really important. And one of the traits, one of, and please don't think about anybody else other than yourself, one of the things of not delegating can be sometimes, not every time, a result of having to be in control. Other times people don't delegate because there's been a history of people dropping the ball and doing a terrible job. And that's why they just don't want to delegate anymore. It's like, you know what? I would rather do it myself than pick up your mess. Amen. Okay. Anger. Everyone say anger. I'm nearly done on this one. Anger. You know, in a, bo a boxer will, can lose the fight and probably will if he gets too angry. I'll say that again. A boxer in boxing, if he becomes too angry, he will lose the fight. And I just want to say this to you all. If you struggle with anger, and it's not wrong to get angry, the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. Okay? So in your anger, do not sin. But if, you're, if you have a propensity just to get angry, you can ask the Holy Spirit tonight, and we'll pray together, just that that, that will be changed into and harnessed with the gift and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Because fits of rage is not one of them. Just to say this as well, another thing is to know that this has been dealt with is when you can freely delegate. When there are good people, that you trust them not only to do the job, but to do it better than you, and you'd be okay with that. To trust their counsel. Wisdom is found in the counsel of many. It, does, it should never all just come down to one person. I can think of so many times in my life where the decision is ultimately mine and I'll listen to the wisdom of others and I'll make a decision based on what is right. You, you hear what I'm saying? I, uh, in the States a couple of years ago, in fact, we were, I was just journeying back and forth to here. We were set to buy, a, I think, a... A 2.8 or $3 million building, and we'd raised the money, we were excited, we'd, we'd gone a long, long journey and did a capital campaign, and it was really exciting, and I was about to come to England, and um, everything was ready to sign, things were ready to go. People were a little bit nervous. They were like, well, you're leaving. What's going to happen? I'm, I'm like, I don't know, but we just know this is God, and I pulled, I pulled three people that I trusted 
in the church, and I asked them to come to my house, and we sat in the backyard, and I said, guys, I'm at a point here. I've got to make a decision, and you know all the facts. And I said, I'm going to ask you this question, and when I do, it's a yes or no answer. And I said, but I want you to know I believe that we should sign this paperwork and pull the trigger and buy this building. But I need to know from you, one, two, three, just yes or no. All the facts, we've already talked about them. All the details, you don't need any more information. It's pulling tr a trigger time. And I said, first person. He said, no. Next person. No. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> Next person. <laughs> no. And I said, well, I have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with me, and so let's take a vote. <laughs> and they said, Dan, before you say anything, we just want you to know that we will back you, and we will stand with you, and we will go for it with you, and no one will ever know that we didn't think we should do it because we are totally for you, and we know you'll make the right decision. And I laughed, and I said, guys, the minute the first one of you said no, I started to think, okay. I'm ready to yield to what I think. And by the time we got to number two and number three, it was, it was a done deal. I said, guys, absolutely we're not doing it. Can you see wisdom is found in the counsel of many? And if we learn to listen to one another, it will save us from great danger. I still think I was right, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Number two, you ready? Everybody happy? Everyone okay? All right, number two, the narcissistic leader. Oh, N-A-R-C-I-S-S-I-C, sorry, S-T-I-C, N-A-R-C-I-S-S-I-S-T-I-C, leader. Okay, you ready? <laughs> Here's the definition. Having an undue fascination with oneself. They're vain. It's all about me. This is a characteristic of certain leaders that may be um, perhaps more prevalent in other countries than this one. I don't know. Um, but nonetheless, it is a certain type of leader and something that when you see it, it's quite, oh, did you see that? My, my hand just buzzed. I've walked five miles today. That's great. Okay. When I eat, it tells me I'm walking. I just love this thing. With integrity, I can tell my doctor, I walked five miles today according to my watch. Okay, move on. Here's some characteristics. They... They are so often so in love with themselves, they find it hard to love anybody else. They are so in love with themselves, they find it hard to love anybody else. They are so in love with themselves, they find it hard to love anybody else. You ever seen that in you? You ever seen it in anybody else? It is not a good thing. Guys, to be a leader, to be a person of influence that is just into you isn't good. In part, not fully, but in part, some of these characteristics and traits you see in Solomon in the Bible. You know, it's hard to follow a legend. 
And that's who Solomon was following. He was following his father, David. If you remember, Solomon was the, was the son of Bathsheba. If you remember, David should have been gone out to war. Uh, but instead, he stayed at bed. He stayed in bed at the springtime. He got up late, looked out, he saw Bathsheba. And he had her husband, Uriah, killed. Another murderer here. Hello. Okay. But... There's some stuff. He, he many times was, in, was so about himself, despite his amazing wisdom and amazing gift and amazing accomplishments. Solomon was incredible. He wrote Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon. He wrote Proverbs. He wrote over a thousand songs and poems. He built ships. This guy was incredible. Solomon was amazing. But he said this in Ecclesiastes, nothing my eyes desire did I deny myself. There was a part of him that was about him. And in the end, his life ended not well, but in idolatry because of the things that he wanted for himself. Narcissistic leader. Much of what they do, they do to enhance themselves. They prove their worth by their own accomplishments. And these characteristics are born from feelings of deep insecurity and inadequacy. I'm going to leave it there and move on to the next one. This is getting a little heavy in here. Happy thoughts. Okay. Number three. Number three. <laughs> number three. The paranoid leader. The paranoid leader. It's going to get better. It's going to get, everyone's going to be happy by the end, okay? The paranoid leader. Here's the definition. Overly and unreasonably suspicious of others. Overly and unreasonably suspicious of others. You may have a, a boss at work or a leader or, or, a, or a parent, or maybe that's you, or you feel like, gosh, that's me. You know, God can heal that. God can set us free from that so we can leave those shackles behind. Paramo paranoid leader. Here's some characteristics. Everyone is a likely threat. They overreact to the mildest of criticism. They find intimate relationships very difficult. Here's a biblical example. Saul started off in humility, but by the end was shackled with suspicion. Tried to make David a clone of himself. Wow. A paranoid leader once, if, well, if you're going if if to do something and, and I, I don't want you to show me up, and I, so I, basically I made you. <laughs> Yeah, so basically, I, everything that you do, I get credit for, right? Because I help you get there. And what he tried to do is put his own armor on, on David. And David said, but it doesn't fit me. He tried to make him like himself. Can you see, when we're paranoid and, we're not, and we, our life is, has a root of fear in it, it causes us to be paranoid of other people. 
And we can see it in our places of work. We can see it in leaders. We can see it in pay, into people of influence. I was watching the debate today going on in the great nation of America just hammering into each other. I mean, it was just gross, to be honest. I don't want to get into politics. All I'll say if, is this. If uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were on a desert island, who would win? The answer, America. Okay. <laughs> we're not going to talk about politics. Okay, so... <laughs> Who would survive? I'm sorry, yeah. I just messed up the joke. Thanks, babe. Okay. Can you erase that from the tape, please? Yeah. <laughs> Who would survive? America. Okay. Um, in, in church, and, and we're, talking about, we're talking about leadership as influence in, the, in every sphere of life, but in the church and in your workplace, you'll see this, but one of the, one of the traits or one of the examples is, is, a, is a fear of others getting recognition. That is a paranoid leader. It's not a godly trait. And what it shows is an indication of I'm not actually really secure with myself, with my own identity, with my own anointing. And the approval of my heavenly father of me is actually not enough. I have to find it in the approval of others. But if we live by the accolades of man, we will die by their criticism. Because at the end of the day, we only have an audience of one. And it's he the one who appoints. It's he's the one that anoints. And if we try and get somewhere through manipulation, in the end, great will be the collapse because we don't have the grace, we don't have the character, we don't have the measure to sustain it. Can, can you see? These are, I know these, some of them are pretty deep and some of them, but, this, but behind all of this, if we can deal with these issues, and that's why accountability is so important, so we can say, hey, where did that come from? You know, I see it in my own life. I'm like, ah, why did I react like that? Ah, that's, ah. You know, I hate that feeling of insecurity. Like, where did that come from? But we can, if we can grab it and say, hey, get, find a, some, someone to be accountable, say, hey, I'm like that. Say, hey, me too. But this is what I've done, and we, have to, we can win this. You know, we've got to get really good at winning. Accountability isn't just, just telling each other how much we, we mess up, but saying, hey, let's get really good at winning. Let's fight this battle and win it and crush its head. Amen? Okay. Um, everyone that comes to help, they eliminate. But they're just here to help. I'm going to eliminate them. Why? Because they're a threat. Why? Because I'm paranoid. You know, I was... Uh, in a meeting one time, and there was somebody who was so young, and he was speaking, and he was preaching, and there was something in his spirit that was so clean, and so unhindered, and and I was just amazed. I thought, what is it? And I turned to the person who's uh, who's a, 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 who's been a father in the faith to me, and I said, what's 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 what is it with that guy? How does he? How does he, there's something about him. I can't quite put my finger on it. And he turned to me and he whispered it in my ear. He said, 
he was fathered without fear. And I just want to say this to you. If you struggle with some of these things, a lot of it comes from a root of fear. The heart that's hurt defaults in fear, and fear defaults in control. But when the Father touches the heart, then our heart defaults in love, and perfect love casts out all fear. You know God is love, and there is no fear in him. Therefore, whenever you feel afraid, you can know it's not from God. There is no fear in love, and God is perfect love. So often it's a lie that we've believed about God because of an earthly father, because of a role model or something, and we've not really caught the depth of God's love, the Father's love for us. And so we view that father figures and people or through, through that lens, and then we become that ourselves to others. Well, you're a threat to me. What? But if we can get rid of the fear, perfect love casts out fear, then we can... We will not only have been fathered without fear, but then we can love people without fear. It's a wonderful place to be. Free. Free, free, free indeed. Wonderful. Number four. Are you ready? Number four. Grant's like, I'm jet lagged. Yeah, please. Number four. <laughs> Number four. The, the codependent leader. The codependent leader. Here's the definition. We're getting a little bit deep here now already. An unhealthy psychological reliance of one person on another. The codependent leader, I have to have something or somebody else. It's an unhealthy psychological reliance of one person on another. Here's some characteristics. They probably or could well have grown up in a very restrictive, very legalistic environment. Had a hard time living up to expectations that others put on them. Here's the Bible example, is Samson. Samson had a Nazarite vow put on him by his parents that he never asked for. He had an expectation put on him that he never put on himself. He was told, and the vow was, you'll never cut your hair, you will never drink strong drink, and you will never touch dead things. And we know the story. He ate the, the, the honey from the carcass of a lion. He, Delilah cut his hair. He was constantly living up to an expectation of him. Self that somebody else put on him and he never did put on himself. Often this trait can come, can result in a deep need to please other people. Leaders often can feel fearful to confront other people. They are willing, very quick and willing, to blame themselves. There's a need to please. They can be often driven by guilt, often double-minded. These are just some of these traits. Please don't think I'm putting us all on poor Samson. <laughs> Samson was a great guy. I know. 
I'm just talking about some character, character traits, and we're going to look at the flip side of these as well. Okay, number five, you ready? Number five, the passive-aggressive leader. The passive-aggressive leader. Again, look to yourself first of all. Don't just look to everybody else or go through a Rolodex in your own mind of all the people who've been passive-aggressive. But here's the definition of passive-aggressive personalities. It's an indirect expression of hostility that manifests in stubbornness, disapproval, and procrastination. Okay, ready? It is an indirect expression of hostility that manifests itself in stubbornness, disapproval, and sometimes procrastination, etc. There's other things as well. But it's an indirect expression of hostility. It's indirect. Passive-aggressive people, you know, they can, they can seem so happy with everything, but inside they are stubborn. Inside, I'm not, there's no way I'm doing that. But they'll say, oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Here's some characteristics. They are stubborn, but it's not necessarily vocal. You know, if I, you know I grew up with great parents. Many of you know my parents, and they were just good communicators. We had to talk everything through and explain everything. And we, it was wonderful. I had an amazing upbringing. Many of you know my, my parents. But so today, it's like, hey, just say what you really think, and people don't. And then later on, they're like, well, I, I never thought we should do that. Like, but why didn't you say so? It could be passive-aggressive. I just, I didn't want to. But even to say yes and smile, but inside, absolutely, I ain't doing that. That's why sometimes you, you see marriages and they go on for so long and you just, on the outside, they look fine. And then even the spouse thought everything was fine. And then one day, something happens and the guy or the gal says, I'm out. You're like, what? How did that happen? Passive-aggressive. And they come up with this massive laundry list of all the things that a spouse did for years. But they never said anything. But one straw broke the camel's back. They never put the cap on the toothpaste, and now I'm going to divorce you. <laughs> it's so unfair. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But that's an extreme example. But sometimes it's just really subtle. Yeah, everything's fine. No, 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 I'm fine. It's like, are you sure? Yep. Because you, you don't feel fine. Everything seems a little tense. No, no, I'm not tense. You're tense. Oh. Right. Okay, then. They get very angry, and then they're really sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It sounds like an abusive person, doesn't it? But you know, these, these traits can be in all of us at times. Here's the biblical example, Jonah. He has a revival, and then he gets mad about it. He gets angry with God. It's like we have a son called Jonah. Something like, huh? Okay. But yeah, he was the angry prophet. That's not why we called our son Jonah. We called it because it means peace, and we're still waiting for that to kick in. <laughs> but we're calling the things that be not as though they are. Okay. Jonah has a revival, and then he got mad about it. Um, Passive-aggressive. Passive-aggressive. Here's some other examples that we can see in, in leadership, in ourselves. Uh, sometimes they sneak into the church leadership. Um, and this is kind of quite like the, the I in leadership acronym of the Ten Commandments. Must believe in the impossible. 
often a passive aggressive person will just see, well, why try? Nothing is ever going to change. <laughs> Sometimes they're very vo- they are very vocal. It's just this aggressiveness, but it's quite passive. It's just, but it's manifesting itself in this kind of gentle stubbornness. But it's got no faith behind it. But it still packs a powerful punch. Because they, watch this, they control people around them with their emotions. Do you know you can control people with your emotions and it's not right? Passive aggressive. Passive aggressive. I was talking to somebody recently who needed some money and so they went to somebody else and gently started to say, hey, yeah. We're really, they said, how are you doing? We're, well, we're doing okay. Just, it's very difficult because we really need to money for this. But hey, we're just trusting the Lord. You know, it's only going to be about 20 pounds, or $30 a month. Could be in America, could be in England. You don't need to know. <laughs> and the person was like, oh, that's, I'm sure we can do that for that need. We can meet that need. Can you see it's not really direct? It's actually a complaint. But it's got a very little twist to it, and it's actually manipulation. I'll read it again. It's an indirect expression of hostility that manifests itself through stubbornness, disapproval, and procrastination. Here's another one. Somebody gets engaged. And you're jealous because you want to get engaged, but you didn't. You're getting, somebody else got engaged. And so that person's now got an engagement ring on their finger. And they say, do you want to see my wedding ring? And they say, yeah. It's not very big, is it? <laughs> it I mean, it's cute. It's nice. I thought it would be bigger, but it's, it's nice. It's, I mean, it's cute on you. It's nice for you. It's an indirect, it's an indirect expression of hostility. It's passive-aggressive. Hey, we just bought a new, our first house. You want to come and see it? Well, I haven't got a house. So I'm going to go and see your house. What do you think? It's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of like a fixer-upper, you know. <laughs> needs some work. I, yeah, it's <laughs> You know, I'm joking, but these, these things are so subtle. But they're, they're actually loaded with manipulation. They're actually loaded with contr- contr- control because I'm going to control the atmosphere by my attitude. And it, honestly, I'm going to be really honest, it's, it's a stench in God's nostrils because it comes from a heart that is not clean. And the way of dealing with all of these things is to check our heart. You know, one of, one of the, a few months ago when we, were, the last time we were here, we had to move out of the house we were renting into another house um, because the owners were coming back, and it was a bit of a hassle, but I found myself on right move, and I started looking at different apartments right here in the center of Bath that would work for our family, and I went to the first one, I thought, it's really dirty. Huh? (laughs) Thank you. So then I went to the next one, I thought I'd look for another one, and I I blew up the picture, and I thought, gosh, that looks really dirty as well. Where are all the houses in the center of Bath? There's only like five available in the center of Bath to fit what we needed. And it's dirty as well. And so then I looked at the third one. This one's dirty too. This is crazy. 
I'm going to call all these agents. And by the fifth one, I really honed in and realized it was my screen that was dirty. <laughs> you know, sometimes everything that looks, like, looks negative and bad is only because of the dirt that's on the lens of our own heart. If you have grit in your mouth, everything tastes like grit. <laughs> you ever had sand in your mouth and you're trying to eat a banana or a sandwich? It's just horror. But if we, and, and so the answer is just that we clean our heart. Say, God, clean my heart. I don't want to be that way. I don't want to look at people with a negative lens. I don't want to look at life through a negative lens. I've got dirt. I don't want to be like that. Are you hearing me? Does that make sense? We can deal with this. Here's, I, I, I'm, I've just got a few minutes left, but there are the five things, so I'll just read them again. The compulsive leader, the narcissistic leader, the paranoid leader, the codependent leader, and the passive aggressive leader. And here's some, that's some of the fruits, but all fruit has a root, right? All fruit has a root. And so we can cut the root off and go, okay, I need to stop being like that. I need to stop it. Yes, I'm going to be nicer to my wife. I'm going to be nicer to my kids. I'm going to be a better leader. I'm going to be a better employee. I'm going to be better. I'm going to stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we just pull the fruit off all the time, but we don't actually deal with the root, then it's going to keep bearing, growing back. And then we're like, what, what's wrong with me? Why can't I deal with this issue? It's just small. It's just angry. Yeah, everybody gets angry at some time. I just need to work on, but everybody's got their own stuff. But it's not okay. Because Jesus is coming back for a bride that is without spot or blemish. He's coming back for a house that is built. And God is really interested in these small things. If we take care of the depth of our character, God will take care of the breadth of our ministry, the breadth of our influence. And remember, we're all called to ministry. Amen? So here's, here's seven, very quick. These are just seven that I've written down. They're certainly not all of them. But here's seven potential routes that we can, we can look at tonight, and then we're going to pray. And the first is this, an unmet need. Where does this come from, an unmet need? need and it could be an emotional a physical a spiritual need that you have that is just unmet and it's a root that just keeps bearing fruit I think I've told this story before it's not a well-publicized story but it's a story of Billy Graham and Billy Graham and his when he was a young man he he was actually engaged and he'd proposed to this girl and given her a ring and the day after he proposed to her, her father showed up with his daughter and he gave the ring back to Billy. And he said, Billy, William, he said, you will not marry my daughter. Thank you, here's the ring back. The reason why is we do not believe that you are good enough for her because we're not convinced you're going to do anything with your life. And Billy went away and he said this, I am somebody and I am going to do something with my life. I'll show you. He said, I'm an evangelist. You watch what I can do. And he started to lead people to the Lord. People in their dozens and this, this like ministry started going. 
And he was like, I'm anointed. I'm going to do something. I'll show them. And one day, he was with the Lord, and he was praying, and God said, son, what's driving you isn't me. It's you. What's driving you is an unmet need for approval of man. And it's going to stop right now. And he prayed, and God just touched him. He asked forgiveness right there and stood back up and became Billy Graham. (laughs) Can you see the gift is either way? It's the filter that we see life. The filter that we, that that is, and the motivation and the character that is behind. Number two. Number two. Hurts and wounds. Hurts and wounds. In Psalm 139 it says, search me, O God. And this is nearly every single time is mistranslated from the original Hebrew language. And if I ask you to, re- to repeat the rest of this psalm, many would say, and I won't say it because I won't embarrass you, but you'd say, see if there's any wicked way in me. Would anybody, has anyone thought that? Search me, O God. It's actually a Hebrew word which only appears one single time in the whole entire Bible. And it's the, I won't pronounce the word, but the word means hurt or pain. So actually, David in this psalm, which makes a lot more sense when you read Psalm 139 in context, he's actually saying, search me, God, search me, O God, see if there be any hurt or pain in me. It's not actually a wicked way. It's hurt or pain. Because if there is hurt or pain that is unresolved, it will be a root that will continue to bear fruit and continue to bear fruit. And the rest of my life, I'm going to be snipping off fruit instead of dealing with the root. See, if we deal with the root, the fruit stops growing. Amen? Cool. And so, number one, unmet need. Number two, hurt and pain. Hurt and pain. Hurt and pain. Oh, you know, some people deal with rejection. But if, it's, if the root of the rejection is actually hurt and pain, well, they're actually, because they've dealt with rejection, they just go around rejecting other people. But what's really happening, if I was talking to someone today who'd had an abusive childhood, and they said, this girl just kept pushing us away and pushing us away. And I said, but because she was rejected she wants she was rejecting you before you rejected her. It's a self-defense mechanism. I'm not going to let you reject me. Therefore, I'm going to reject you. Can you see this? It's, when we see this in other people, it helps us love them and see behind the reaction, behind the fruit, and look to the root. It's like somebody hurt you. Fee and I, when we first got married, there was a, we, we lived in this little house. It was literally on bricks. It was like a, an old prefab building from the war. I mean, it had a little wood-burning fireplace, um, and that was our, our source of heat. It had a tiny little bathroom, and it, you had to crouch down in the shower. It's the cutest little thing. Grant and Steen came and stayed with us. Do you remember that? <laughs> they did. Grant and Steen came and stayed with us. And uh, there was a lady who owned the ground that all these little houses were on, and everybody had to pay ground rent. And there was an English bylaw which which meant that she couldn't get rid of anybody. But she just couldn't stand anyone being there. And everybody, and I don't say these words lightly, they hated her. And they made it clear, have you heard? I mean, they called her all kinds of uh, names. We didn't actually know her name, her real name, until we went and actually met her. But her real name was Mrs. Liddington. And she would just shout and scream, and she'd just call the police, and it was just, there was always something going on, and we just kept ourselves to ourselves. 
And then she wanted to see us. But we, when we met her, we just asked her this question. We said, wow, you've lived here a long time, haven't you? Yes, I've lived here, she said. I was born here. I grew up here. It's like, that's amazing. And what we started to do is honor the fact that she'd been there for a long time and ask her, what's it been like over these years? And the more we talked to her, it was like a, it was zoom, 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 because there was an unmet need. There was a hurt. There was a wound. People just dishonored her. Nobody cared about what she thought. So she just rejected everybody before they rejected her. Can you see? It's perfect love casting out fear. If there's fear in, you, in somebody, the way we get it out is by loving them. You know pride covers fear? Pride covers fear. If you, look, if you get a glass and you lift it, look inside the glass, at the bottom of the glass, if the outside of the glass is pride, inside it's fear with a lid on it. And it's really helpful to know that because when you meet somebody who's got pride, the last thing you want to do is love them. You want to smack them over the head with a two-by-four and bring them down a rung or two. Amen? I mean, just me. (laughs) But the way to deal with the pride is to cast out the fear. And the way you do that is to perfectly love them. And it just... It's the word perfect that just gets to me. It's not, well, just love them. No, I want you to perfectly love them. And if you perfectly love them, it will drive out the fear. All right, number three, trauma, 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 trauma. A traumatic experience. So often roots come from trauma. And, you know, there's people who are specialists, even in this room tonight, people who have studied this, people who have got training in this. But trauma is a, is a massive root that if left unmet, unattended to, can, can bear the most weird-looking fruit for a really long time. But to look at that, to look at trauma, I, I remember a man that I highly respect um, in ministry um, that really, really helped me and Fee many years ago, and he went through some tra- trauma in his life. And I'll never forget these words. We were sitting in a Frankie and Benny's in Coventry. And he had gone through this trauma. And he said these words. He said, I am not going to get hurt anymore. I am not going to allow anyone to hurt me. And what he did is he put a fence around the trauma. Because he didn't know how to deal with it. And the trauma was so great, the rejection, the pain that he'd gone through, he put a hedge around it, wouldn't let anybody in. Traumatic experience. Number four, twisted and perverted thought patterns. Twisted and perverted thought patterns. And this could be anything to do with lies. It could be fear. It could be anger. It could be sexual sin. It could be jealousy. But if we're not, but Paul says in Romans chapter 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. Don't conform to the patterns of this world. Everyone say patterns. You know, there's patterns of this world, but there's also patterns, Paul says, of sound doctrine. And we can live by the pattern of the world, which, is, which origin is with the enemy, the God of this world, spiritual ion, atmosphere, or we can live by the patterns of sound doctrine that Paul says to Timothy, I'm nearly done, and we're going to wrap up. So, twisted and perverted thought patterns. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, don't, uh, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, don't be burdened again with the yoke of slavery. All right, number five is plateau. Everyone say plateau. Plateau, plateau, plateau. Don't plateau. So, another a root is of, of, that bears fruit is just boredom. 
It's, it's being aimless. It's, having, it's being purposeless. And when we are purposeless, we plateau, we stop growing, and boredom comes. And you, when there's boredom, temptation is just around the corner. Uh, number six, um, when we live or move outside of our grace... When we, meet, when we live and we move and we function outside of our grace, each one of us has been given a gift, each one of us has been given a proportion, a measure of grace, and it's so important that we find our G-I-I-L, our God-imposed limitations, we all have one. This is why, by the way, team is so important, because the greatest gift is the one that's needed at that time. <laughs> The greatest gift is the one that's needed at that time. But if we have all these issues going on in our heart, we always believe it's us and that we can do everything rather than humbly say, I'm not actually very good at that, but you're in charge. I know, but I'm rubbish at it. <laughs> and if I do it, it's going to mess everything up. But let's find someone who can. I think I said this to the church. My, it's not my responsibility to take care of everybody in this church, but it is my responsibility to make sure everybody in this church is cared for. And that's why we're doing pastoral training coming up on the 12th of this month, next month, 12th of next month. We're giving give a whole um, of a Saturday or best part of a Saturday to training people in pastoral ministry. Anyone's welcome to come from the oldest and the youngest of the church. You're welcome to come. But why? So we can make sure that people are cared for. And number seven, number seven, finally, brothers and sisters on this lovely, wonderful Monday evening, the last thing, the last root that bears fruit that can cause all kinds of problems is weariness. Weariness. Everyone say weariness. You know, I've done a lot of study on weariness, and I personally believe that weariness is always demonic. Tiredness is not. Tiredness, Jesus was tired, but Jesus says, come to me all who you who are weary. Weary and I will give you rest. Put my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Daniel chapter 7, it says this, before the ancient of days comes, the enemy will come to weary the saints. Weary. The enemy, watch this, the enemy will come to weary the saints. The enemy will come to wear, to wear down. The actual word weary means to make old before it's time. You know, I have to fight this because, you know, one of the things of being a leader at any level is, and I, don't, and I don't mean this to be negative or put a downer on the evening, but you're asking for trouble. <laughs> because with leadership does come responsibility. And the, there are different, with every level comes a different devil. The wonderful thing is, guys, the wonderful thing is, is that we have authority over all the power of the enemy. So however great the, the enemy may be, we have to know our authority. And that's why if we know that greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world, and we know that we're the head and we're not the tail, we know that we're more than conquerors, we know that we have more power in our pinky and our small finger than all of hell does, then it doesn't matter what schemes the enemy comes and tries to throw at us to throw us off. That's why Paul says, don't be ignorant of Satan's schemes. He's a schemer. He wants to throw us off with Jesus when he came up out of the water and after the temptation. Um, it says, and the devil left him for a more opportune time. The devil is an opportunist. Tony and I were talking about this today. The, the devil is an opportunist and he never plays fair. He will wait till we're at our lowest point. He'll wait till we're at our most vulnerable point and then he'll attack. 
It's not like, oh, I think he's had enough. Poor Bob, he's had enough. Just leave him. Come on, guys, we'll, go, we'll get him another day. Poor guy, look, he's bleeding. No, his only purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. I'm not saying this to freak us out. I'm saying this to say, hey, can you see how important it is that we know the power of yeast? That we know the power that God has put inside of us? That we are the head and not the tail? I've given you all authority over all the power of the enemy? And that's the truth. Amen? So let's all stand up, and, and uh, I'm going to pray. If you can, just, just close your eyes. Don't worry about the person next to you. I uh, prophesied last night at the sixth um, meeting, and I had this word, and if you can just close your eyes for a moment, I'm going to bring this word again. But the word was simply this, is that the Lord was saying, I see you. I see you. I don't just see the person next to you, but the Lord says, I see you. I see you. I see your pain. I see your struggles. I see your highs and I see your lows. I see, I see the anxiety. I see the depression. I see the health. I see the joy. I see the excitement. I see the accomplishments that you've done. I see them all, says the Lord. But I want to touch an area in you that will bring you freedom. I want to touch an area in you that will bring you liberty. I want to touch an area in you that will see shackles fall off. I want to touch an area in you, areas of fear, that with my love comes, if you'll open up to me, that love will cast out that fear. And Lord, tonight I just ask Holy Spirit that you just come right now, that you would come with with Windex, spiritual Windex, and you would clean the windows of our own hearts. And the Lord, Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would just speak to us, that you would give us that little niggle, whatever it is, out of one word that we've talked about tonight, one principle that we've looked at of what kind of people ought we to be, that, we, that you would show us not only what we ought to be, what we, but what we, not, what we ought not to be. And whatever those things are, that you would just show us. Just wait, guys, right now. Let him show you. Don't just let your mind race. God sees you. He doesn't just see the next person next to you. He sees, he sees you. He sees you. And if you'll allow him, like a GPS, he'll find those roots and he'll touch them. He'll find those roots and he'll touch them. He'll show you what they are. And I would just encourage you just to say, Father, please forgive me for allowing that lie to take root in my heart. Please forgive me for allowing that root, that lie to take root and bear fruit. And just say tonight, I speak to that root, that root which is a lie, that root that is from the pit of hell. And I curse you in Jesus' name. I curse you in Jesus' name. Lie, I curse you in Jesus' name. I crush your head. I break your power. I bind your authority with the authority that's been given to me. You have no place in my life. Stop living rent-free in my head. Filth lens on my lens of my own heart. 
Just let it be washed right now. I just speak to shame and I just say, get out in Jesus' name. For our shame, Isaiah 61 says, he'll give a double portion. And I just ask for freedom right now, just for all shame to go away. Shame, disgrace, guilt. Some of you just made mistakes and the enemy is just in having a field day. You feel like you're doing good and he puts his foot out and reminds you of something that you did, something that you said, an action that you did or didn't or something that you should have done but you didn't do. And I just speak to that right now. You speak to it and say, guilt, get out. Shame, get out. Say, Jesus, forgive me. I just bring it to the surface. Thank you for finding it with your GPS. Bring it to the surface. Let it go. As you go home tonight, as you lie on your pillow, just thank the Holy Spirit for cleansing you from all unrighteousness. And then let the past be the past. Don't let anybody, including yourself, remind you of it. Let it go. Let it go. Bury it. Bury it. Bury your fear and expose your talent (laughs) instead of the other way around. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you in this room tonight now. I just thank you for this room full of ambassadors, for this room full of people that are called to full-time ministry who've been given the ministry of reconciliation. I thank you that each one of us is called to a degree of leadership because each one of us is called to a different sphere and level of influence. And as we leave here tonight, God, I ask that you would just continue to deal with these issues and pinpoint issues at their root so that they stop bearing fruit and that we could live free, free, free indeed, in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. 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 Thanks so much, guys. Was that helpful? Brilliant. Excellent. Sleep incredibly well, everybody. Love you.